0: This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Oftentimes we ask people to stand up because it keeps them short. Keeps the meeting short, not not
1: the people short.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's not that we thought that our system was good, we just didn't know what else to do.
1: Welcome to Hello PhD a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share some planning techniques from the tech industry to help you organize your lab. Stay with us.
2: And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 162. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hello, Dan. Good evening.
1: Hey Josh, we are creeping scarily close to the IPA freefall, and because of that, we don't have any beer tonight because we don't have. <laughs> uh, I think we ran through the ones you purchased at the bottle shop, and I don't think we're ready for for what happens after IPAs. So maybe we'll take a little breather this week.
2: I know uh, that gives our listeners just a little bit of time because I am going to go to the bottle shop soon. So if any of you have suggestions for beers we should try on the show, uh, types of beer that you have not heard us try, we are open to suggestions and you better let us know within the next week or so. (laughs) So get that in. They have to all be Belgians because that's what I'm into (laughs) recently. (laughs) The only rule, the only actual rule is they cannot be IPAs because we notoriously uh, sampled too many IPAs in our early days of the podcast. So trying to branch out.
1: We used to get complaints. Uh, in place of that, Josh, we do have an exciting announcement that is actually more relevant than 99% of our ethanol sections. You and I, we, we put in our, our time producing the podcast. We record it. We edit it. We write a blog post. Do you know what we almost never do enough of, Josh? Sleep? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, sleep is true. That's not because of the podcast. I was going to say social media. And, uh, you know, what we are looking for now is... And and this was advice we got from our good friend, Susanna Harris, who said, you should find a student or uh, somebody that listens to your podcast that is great with social media and that can help you engage the audience and find new people to listen to the show. And so that's what we're going to do. We're not putting this on the website. We're not putting this in our social media. We're just announcing it here because what we want is somebody who listens to the show, who... Uh, will help us for a very short stint, about three months, I think, and can take over the keys to our Twitter account and some of our social media feeds and help us engage our audience, help new people find the show.
2: Yeah and this can be a great CV booster if you're someone who uh, is a trainee and you're working in the lab but you're thinking career-wise down the road you'd like to do something that's more communications based or social media based this could be uh, really a short short-term low effort way to uh, to to get a CV boost and and it would help us out just a little bit behind the curtain uh, one thing that I think is great about doing a podcast with uh, someone else is we do split the workload up. Dan is our website guru, uh, our business guy, um, and I'm the audio engineer portion. But we, (laughs) I think we have both struggled with the social media engagement. So if that's something you're into and would be fun for you, uh, please get in touch with us. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Or we do check our Twitter uh, feed, our Twitter DMs, so you can reach us there at hellophd. We hope to hear from you.
1: And I don't know how many tiktok dances that i'm willing to do but probably not that many we'll see i know how to floss now josh i'm ready (laughs) oh you finally do i've known that one for a while my kids my kids taught me well you have to have kids to teach you how to floss
2: yeah you learned it about uh two years too late i think but i would say more
1: than two years more than (laughs) two years josh we want to thank promega cloning your gene can be one of the biggest headaches of your project before you jump in make sure you're using the best method for your gene and target locus. If you need help deciding, check out the cloning guides in the Promega Student Resources Center for advice on choosing a method, as well as tips for making your experiments a success. Visit promega.com slash hellophg to learn more.
2: Also, Dan, we would like to thank our friends at BioBox. Research can move slowly, but you don't have to. Accelerate your research with Biobox Analytics. Analyze and explore your genomic data on demand with no coding skills required. You can sign up for free at biobox.io. And with that, Josh, let's get on with the show. All right, Dan, I have to say, this was an interview you put together And I first looked at the show notes and they were simply titled Episode 162 Lab Scrum. And I have to admit, Dan, uh, I was wondering if we needed some kind of household cleaner to uh, (laughs) take care of that scrum.
1: Oh, you've got to take care of the lab scrum. Otherwise, it builds (laughs) up. This one is not entirely my fault, Josh. We actually got a request from one of our patrons who said, Hey, I want to learn more about this lab scrum thing that I've read about. And... Because of our podcast and the fact that I'm willing to talk to anybody that is willing to talk to me, I reached out to Lisa May, who is a a PhD and somebody who is uh, basically a practitioner, the creator of this concept called Lab Scrum. You will hear, Josh, that Scrum is a planning process that is used very widely in in industry, particularly in technology. So people who develop apps, uh, software, things like that, use this Scrum planning process. And what Lisa has done is taken the parts out of that that apply to labs and applied them to labs. Judge, I don't think it's a a surprise or, or news to you that lab planning is a contradiction in terms in many cases.
2: A failure to plan is a plan to fail, and that is something I think we've all encountered. I did a lot of that. I did a lot <laughs> in, of planning
1: to fail, Josh.
2: In our lab context, uh, I will say, Dan, I love this interview because this was I learned something completely new that I did not that I not did not know existed in the world uh, for me. But after listening to your conversation with Doctor May, I now. I'm going to be thinking about this and thinking about ways that I can implement Scrum into my own workday. So I think our listeners uh, might get a lot out of this as well. Let's take a listen.
0: So my name is Lisa May, and I am a Scrum Master and Agile Coach. And a lot of what I have done is adapting Scrum to the academic research environment Um, I spent some time at the University of Oregon as an Agile coach, and these days I met Thermo Fisher Scientific as a Scrum Master.
1: Well, welcome, and thank you for taking the time. This is a a especially fun topic for me because it is a combination of my two worlds. Having kind of grown up in the lab and then moved over to software development, I have looked back on my time in the lab and thought, you know, why couldn't we do some sort of planning. So can we start by talking about the state of the art in a lab and how work is planned and organized and some of the problems with that?
0: Absolutely. Yes. So first of all, thanks for having me. It's, it's fun to be here. So my experience as an academic researcher was pretty chaotic. There was some attempt at, you know, some planning through a weekly meeting with my advisor, but that was about it. And it was largely me on my own, trying to figure things out and struggling to balance different priorities. So in my case, I taught, I had coursework. And then of course I was trying to do my research. Many other people, you know, have additional things to balance. Like, you know, if they're doing clinical work or or other things. And um, so a lot of the struggles I had was in, not understanding when I was truly figuring out something that other people didn't know, like that's what we're supposed to be doing right. in research, versus am I reinventing the wheel? Am I doing things that people already know how to do? And I, um, it was very challenging for me to know when, um, when, <laughs> when I was uh, on the right track and also just how to get context and help and support. I also didn't have much of a long-term vision for my work. I was felt like I was kind of just getting by week to week. Um, but I I didn't feel like I was very intentional about a long-term plan for my graduate training and where I wanted to go as a career. Uh,
1: I think your description will sound very, very familiar to a lot of people listening. And I actually suspect that some people have it worse. You, you talked about having a weekly meeting mm-hmm. with your uh, PI. And that's not something everybody gets. And so even that level of in- interaction maybe puts you ahead. But still, what you're describing is kind of information silos, a lack of long-term planning, uh, maybe repeating work that other people have already done or could be doing. And and so it's like quite a bit of dysfunction because there's no plan for making a plan. Yeah,
0: and I think one of the interesting things to think about as a trainee is Who owns your work? Is it, you know, to a certain extent, sometimes it's the PI if you're working on a big project that's shared with them or it's their funding or something like that. But then a lot of times you are supposed to be owning a big chunk of it. And so some of that is the challenge on what the vision is because it's a little unclear on who's providing that vision. Yeah, I was incredibly lucky to have a really supportive mentor who I respect a great deal and who despite all of the challenges gave me a lot of, of mentoring a lot of time and I, I do know a lot of people who struggled <laughs> even more than right. I did
1: yeah it's it's a spectrum it really is so what inspired you to make a change what you you saw that but how did you know that
0: it could be different? yeah I actually think about it. my advisor said oh it's not that we thought that our system was good we just didn't know what else to do we didn't exactly know, we didn't. <laughs> So I was venting at the dinner table. My husband is a software developer and I was just saying, why are we doing it this way? Everything is so chaotic and so dysfunctional. And he said, well, you know, there's like an evidence-based practice for managing work like this. And I had like, I literally didn't know. And as I was trying to figure out what was happening with my career development, he said, you know, you'd be a really good project manager. And I always look back on that conversation, because it's funny to me now, I didn't know that project management was a thing. Like, I didn't know that was a job.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I I don't blame you, because what is, you say the word product, there's no product in lab, or at least no one has made the translation to what a lab produces being a product. And so I, I don't think it's a surprising thing that you had not heard of a product manager. but. So, so he told you, "Hey, there's an evidence-based practice that you could be using." And did you just dive into books, or did you quiz him, or how did you learn about it?
0: Yeah, I started reading and read Jeff Sutherland's book, which is sort of the classic. I read it. Yep. Scrum. You have to book and <laughs> and started thinking about it and um, started. I have to say, I have to give my husband a lot of credit. I started having a lot of conversations with him about how would this work? What would we do? What would this look like? Um, and that that was an incredibly helpful conversation for me, an ongoing conversation about our challenges and, and what we might want to try. And I think that's what sparked the idea that this could be an experiment that I could try. And then I think the next step was I took it to my PI, who, I, like I've said, is, is real great and real supportive and said, hey, I kind of want to try this crazy experiment here's what I think it would look like. He supported me going and getting Scrum Master training, which was like a two day thing. Um, You know, it's not, it's not a huge time commitment. Um, And then it was at that training that I met Tamara Runyon, who is a, you know, a trainer and scrum coach who has helped me a ton and given me a lot of pro bono coaching and she you know when I talked to her about it why 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 did you help me um she said because it was interesting because it's out of you know cutting edge and different and yep. let's see if we can make this work so uh, I would say I've I've been lucky enough to have kind of a community of people around me who were interested in the experiment and and willing to try something new
1: I want to uh, we've said these words agile we said scrum we've said yeah. scrum master most people listening I'm sure have maybe they've watched rugby so they've heard the word scrum but it means something different in this context. Can you take us through where those terms come from and, and what they mean in this context, this planning context?
0: So Agile is a philosophy and Scrum is one of the implementations that kind of sits under that, that philosophy umbrella. People sometimes think Scrum is a, an acronym, but like you alluded to, it come, it's a metaphor that comes from rugby. That Scrum is that group of people who have this really intensive teamwork. So it's a metaphor about teamwork. Agile came from the 90s and early 2000s in software development, and it was a reaction to the way that projects were being managed, what we call waterfall, where the idea was, it came from manufacturing. The idea was that you could plan everything at the beginning and then just do it. And that works really well in manufacturing or other things where things may be super complicated, but, they, but you don't need to iterate. You can kind of understand it all at the beginning um but what the the big shift was the like literally to be agile is the language around it was the idea that software development doesn't really work like that you kind of need to get started before you understand what comes next and of course in research you can't write your results section until you have your results like right? like that is like to me the definition of something that needs that that iterative process
1: that is so good so if i'm a manufacturer making a toaster and I want to get a thousand toasters made by February. I, I can walk backward to the steps. So I can say, well, to assemble the toaster parts, I need to have ordered them, and I need to get the the parts from these five places, and they have backlogs. And so I, I step myself back. And I know that I'm going to produce my toasters in November. If I'm a software developer, and this is what they what they used to do, they would say, we're going to release, you know an operating system in November and here's all the things we're going to build into it. Well, it turns out when you try to do that for most types of software, you find out the customer didn't actually want these 15 things you were about to build. And two of them are mutually exclusive and can't be done. And and so the idea was if we take it step by step and keep testing and keep releasing and keep changing the strategy based on what's out in the world, then we need a different form of planning. We can't do this waterfall style. And, and what you said about lab is so right. If anybody has ever had an experiment fail and you had to change it, you recognize you can't plan your paper f- five figures ahead. You, you kind of have to go step by step and change your outcomes.
0: I think the other thing to say is um, Scrum talks about it being a framework. So it's not that it's going to dictate all of your processes, but it gives you kind of a, a container to put your processes in and to think about how you can uh, adapt. So I, when I talk to, uh, to scientists about Scrum, I like to talk about empiricism because it's this concept that we understand, right? But we're really used to thinking about like our work product, like what it is that we're doing as empiricism. Scrum talks about our work process as empiricism. So That's important. they have this, I mean, right? It's, it's just a classic feedback loop, but they talk about these three pillars of Scrum um, transparency, inspection, and adaptation, which is just a feedback loop. Um, so all of these processes that Scrum is doing, it's, you know, largely we talk about a set of meetings, is just giving you those feedback loops to help you iterate and help you have experiments and just try things out. So in our, you know, we might not have a lot of quantitative data about our process unless we really want to collect it, but it's that that just learning from experience still of let's try something, see if we like it, and then try something else.
1: Okay, let's let's make it more concrete because this may still feel a little abstract. Can you talk us through what a week might look like or a typical month or something like that for a lab that's using Lab Scrum?
0: So the other thing I should say about Scrum versus Lab Scrum, I have done my best to stay as true to Scrum as I can because of the extent that it has value. But what I have found is that sometimes academics have been confused by the presentation of Scrum, which is largely still in the software context. Right. And scientists end up being like, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't, none of that would work for me. I'm not checking in code.
1: Why are you talking about this?
0: Yeah. What is this? Uh, So one of the reasons that I've just put a different name on it is just to clarify and put some language around, hey, this is the stuff that... I've experimented with that works in the academic research context. So that's why I put this word lab scrum on it.
1: And I think I think there's precedent for this. I think in Sutherland's book, if I recall correctly, he talks about planning a, a home renovation project. It was a bathroom or something like that. And he had the plumber and the electrician and the drywaller, and they went through this process with him because... This is not about software. This is about how do you organize teams of people? And a lab, working at its best, is a team of people. So so go ahead. Talk us through what the week might look yeah. like.
0: Okay. Um, so the first idea is to, to chunk your time into some a, a, large, a large enough time that you feel like you have enough time to get something done and that you can kind of come back together as a group and get some feedback on it. We call that a sprint, and that is usually two weeks. Um, sometimes when people are launching an R01 or doing something that's really intense, maybe a, a one week chunk of time has worked better. And then sometimes in the summer, when things are a little bit more relaxed, I've seen people do a month sprint,
1: Wow. Yeah. Um,
0: but in general, <laughs> but the idea is to just pick a, a cycle that you can just be consistent and get a rhythm with. And then within that cycle, there are these sets of meetings. Um, the first one we call a planning meeting and That is just what it sounds. It's a time to come together and get feedback on your plan. Here's what I think my goals are for the next two weeks. Is that reasonable? It's a great time to hear, oh, there's an R package for that. You don't even have to do that. Or, you know, get get that input before you start.
1: Wouldn't that be nice?
0: (laughs) Those are the best moments, right? When somebody says that to you. (laughs) You don't have to do that. All the work you Um, don't
1: have to do because somebody else knows how to do it.
0: And then... We, um, we start, we say, okay, here's what we're gonna try to achieve for the, the next two weeks, if it's two weeks. And then we have some regular meetings, some, some short check-in meetings. In industry, those are typically every day. And we call those either a daily scrum because that's like that huddle, or we call them stand-up sometimes um, because oftentimes we ask people to stand up because it keeps them short.
1: Keeps the meeting short, not the people short.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a ton of value in actually standing up for standups because it really changes the energy. Um, And so those are quick check-ins. It's not that we're solving problems in that meeting, but we're identifying problems that can be solved. So we we hear from everybody, what have you been working on? What are you going to work on next? And where are you stuck? And it may be, oh, you know, Person A needs to talk to person B after the meeting or stuff like that. It's just a quick coordination meeting.
1: The the standing up piece is really quite important. I'm sure everybody's had the experience where you decide, we're just going to have this quick meeting. Let's sit around the conference table. And an hour and a half later, the PI is pontificating on something totally unrelated and your gel ran over and all these terrible things have happened because this quick meeting turned into a a lifetime, basically. I've heard of, of... people doing stand up where you have to hold a bowling ball while you're speaking and and then they pass that around but the point is what did you do what are you going to do and and what's blocking you and i think exposing some of those blocks is one of the most valuable things also the fact that you're thinking about what are you, what did you do and what are you going to do on a more than once a week basis or once a month basis i think is really valuable
0: i also have heard a lot of people say that they've Learned a lot by hearing more regular details about their lab mates' work. Um, so it's something that they are, you know, peripherally interested in, but but normally wouldn't hear the details, and that that's that's been beneficial too.
1: Yeah, there's so much room for um, combining efforts. You know, if if I've if I'm running five gels today, I don't know if people still pour gels. I assume so. Uh, I could, you know, I could put an extra lane in, right? If you needed that, mm. I could. Mm maximize both our time because i'm already doing this process or if i've noticed some contamination in the cell culture and you've noticed some contamination in the cell culture but we haven't talked to each other there could be a bigger problem with the incubator but how would we ever know that unless we were working together or exposing some of those things in stand up
0: typically i see academic research labs shoot for three days a week for a stand-up meeting instead of every day because of schedule constraints, and that usually works pretty well. So maybe if we had planning on a Monday, we'd do that short stand-up check-in on a Wednesday and a Friday, again on the next Monday and Wednesday, and then by Friday we'd be at the end of that cycle and we'd be ready for a more in-depth check-in. So what we call the sprint review, sometimes we call it the demo meeting, That's a time to actually come and get a lot of feedback on the work that you got done. And that one is the most similar to a traditional lab meeting. And that's my favorite meeting because it's so fun to see your colleagues work, right? Like, oh, my God, I've been hearing about this for two weeks. I know what you're working on a little bit. I cannot wait to see. The big difference between a traditional lab meeting for me and a sprint review is I always sort of grew up as a scientist having that lab meeting schedule set kind of at the beginning of the semester or the quarter. And instead, what we do is check in with people maybe a day or two in advance and find out, hey, how did you do? Are you at the point where you would either benefit from some feedback or you think your peers would benefit from seeing what you've done? And so it's a much more flexible, informal venue.
1: That's interesting. And Is it an hour-long thing or it goes as long as it takes? How does that schedule work?
0: I think 90 minutes is really good because you're going to get oftentimes a lot of fun conversation. Sometimes if a lot of people are in the middle of data collection or something like that where you don't have a lot, it can be a lot shorter. And one of the things I always say is, what do you think what would have the most benefit for you? So right. it's really specific to the lab. But yeah, I think an hour or 90 minutes is pretty good.
1: I mean that cadence having an every an opportunity every 2 weeks to present your results and and having those daily stand-ups or or couple times a week stand-ups. Now I'm not waiting till the end of the quarter because this is what happens, let's be honest. I know I'm presenting at lab meeting on June 30th and so I will twiddle my thumbs and serve Facebook until June 28th. And then I'm like, oh, no, lab meeting. And I'll do all my, you know, I'll try to get work done and it'll mess up and I'll have some reason that it messed up. Having that cadence of every two weeks, I'm, I'm delivering some kind of results and I'm getting feedback on this experiment didn't work, it failed. But here are five other people who are willing to help me troubleshoot that. That is so much faster uh, to be producing results. And I think... People might graduate sooner if if they're working on that cadence, right? I know you haven't, you're not making any claims to that, but I'm just thinking in my mind, this could really speed up the process of graduate training.
0: That's another really fun conversation about metrics. How do we measure success? Is it papers under review? Is it, you know, wh- what is it? If it's papers under review, which is the best thing I've thought of, that still takes years. So it it's hard to measure. But I would say I've heard qualitatively a lot from people that they feel like they're getting a lot more done.
1: That's great. Um, So we've done our review and then we start a new cycle or what happens after that review?
0: So there's one more meeting. It is called the sprint retrospective. And that meeting is a time to focus on and reflect about the process. And this was pretty new to me. It's a time to think, okay, how did it go? What were the things that went really well? first of all, very nice to have a venue to celebrate success because we oftentimes don't take a lot of time to do that. But also reflect on, oh, what could we improve about our process? One of the reasons I really like this is because when you are balancing a ton of competing priorities, spending time thinking about your process oftentimes falls to the bottom of your list and it's hard to have time to do it.
1: So this retrospective process is not about how my results turned out this is about did we like the process of our work or, or how we did our planning can, can you be specific about what we're what we're looking back on
0: absolutely yes more on the process side for example boy our pre-processing pipeline like my examples are from MRI right like everybody sure. has different methods our we have a huge problem with motion correction in our pre-processing pipeline, and we're all struggling with it as hard as it is. Maybe we should dedicate some time to fixing that the next two weeks. I see. Or, like you said, you know, maybe we have a problem with some of our cultures or whatever it is. Also, so that's one example. I also find that because a lot of our work is pretty independent, some issues come up that are much more related to your personal work. I've been trying. I'm dissertating, I've been trying writing for two hours every morning, but I'm finding it's a terrible time for me. Maybe I want to shift to trying afternoons or whatever it is, right? Maybe I need to get some more exercise because I'm really not feeling too productive. So I oftentimes find it's kind of a balance between our shared work process, but then our individual work process too. It's kind of kind of back and forth.
1: And it, it seems like it's a one step higher level looking down on the players and the, the situations and saying hmm, maybe if we move these things around. This meeting, we're doing our daily stand-ups, but only half the lab can make it because of this problem. What if we moved it to this other time? And and so it's continually looking at the processes and trying to make those better and adapting them to your lifestyle and your work style.
0: It's 100% correct. And that is this piece of building in process improvement, focusing on your process, That piece is one of the pieces that people talk about is how Scrum really continues to drive your improvement Um, because there's this habit, this cycle where you you already do it. One of the goals of your sprint retrospective is to have some action item to focus on for the next time. So it's very concrete, very goal-setting oriented. And it could be as simple as let's try our stand-up at four in the afternoon instead, whatever it is. And the other piece of it, which we haven't talked about yet, is the value of having somebody who's a dedicated facilitator for that meeting and for everything else to to really drive that conversation so it's not just venting (laughs) about, you know, but, okay, well, what do we want to try? Let's actually concretely think about what we could improve on.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the roles that people in the lab play? Because it seems like with these meetings, I don't want the PI pontificating for an hour at a time so is there somebody that is responsible for keeping us moving along
0: so there is the role called the scrum master and that provides a lot of value for exactly the reasons that you're talking about academics love to talk (laughs) and we love to talk about our work so traditional scrum has three roles what we call the product owner the development team and the scrum master I try to focus less on what the development team or the product owner mean because they don't translate quite as well, but that scrum master role is super, super helpful for a team being successful. A side note. uh, I want to give credit to Keely Muscatel who has suggested using the language of scrum leader instead of scrum master. I like that. I like it so much. It's like remove some problematic language and also is descriptive. Um, So, yeah, so a scrum master, a scrum leader is a facilitator, a servant leader, and their role is to own the process. And so their job is to say, great, well, what is our action item from retrospective? And, you know, as we move into the next sprint to follow up on it and say, hey, I know you said you wanted to work on this. How's it going? And also which is what I do a lot of is saying, "Hey, let's make sure this meeting stays on track. I know we love talking about that theory, but that's not the focus of this meeting." Things like that. So that is one of the huge things that can be just really, really helpful. Um I love doing that work. I think it's so fun. I love learning about other people's science in a way that I get to be really enthusiastic about it. I will say that it can be challenging to fund somebody in that position because
1: as a separate role I'm
0: not. Yeah. And R1 doesn't, you can't put a line item for scrum master, you know? So oftentimes teams need to be kind of creative about how they do it. It can be a lab manager who is serving as a scrum master. Sometimes the PI can have some of those aspects that we talked about that power dynamic is not ideal. Some people are successful at having a rotating person. So like, okay, this sprint, I know I'm facilitator for all this stuff. I have worked some with um, clinical psychologists, uh, and boy, they're good at that because they're used to running
1: <laughs> um, that makes sense. You know,
0: therapy sessions and group sessions. They, they're they're on it. So there's different ways to, to fill that role. But at least thinking about how to meet those needs can be super helpful for helping a team succeed.
1: It's not a big time commitment, if I'm understanding correctly. Somebody who is a grad student, say, and has experiments and things to do could also serve in this role, you, you know, especially on a rotating basis. But it's it's really just facilitating these meetings, and I assume maybe doing some scheduling and things like that, but it's not a full-time job to be looking over people's shoulders and making sure that they're on task. That's not, that's not the nature of the role, and it's not the time commitment.
0: It really depends. Um, so I have been able to have a position in the past where it was full-time or close to full-time, and if you can afford it, finding somebody who can help out in that way can be super helpful because... There's also this aspect of a scrum master who's a coach who can say, like, let's sit down and talk through everything that you're trying to accomplish in the next two months and think about how you might do that. It's on a more logistical level than a PI might have time to do, but it's still just like, I'm here to help you. I'm here to support you. But you're right. It At the very minimum, I think you could probably get by with maybe five hours a week, 10 hours a week in that Facilitator
1: role, yeah, and and it's probably showing a little bit of my bias as a person who graduated from a very small lab, right? I didn't ah. have thirty people. There was a postdoc and me and the PI, so oh.
0: the,
1: the meetings would have been short and sweet, uh, and and we would have rotation students and and occasionally other graduate students or undergrads, but it wasn't. It, if we were a team of fifty people, then. You'd probably want one or two dedicated people. You may divide up the development teams into more than one group uh, because that's just too big to facilitate.
0: Yep. Yeah. And it, I think it always just comes back to what means your what means your needs, who you might have, who could because there's kind of a specific skill set that fits that. Um, Tends to do better with somebody who's pretty extroverted, who's willing to ask a lot of questions, who's willing to interrupt people. <laughs> I do a lot of interrupting, but it's, uh, it takes some grace to figure out how to do and, it. Lightly. And
1: no and, hard feelings, right? Um,
0: yeah, right? Like, I'm here to serve you, and one of the ways I serve you is to bring you back on task. Yeah. Um,
1: and, and I think what's so cool about the retrospective piece that we talked about is if, if Daniel is serving as the scrum leader this week, and... I'm doing an excellent job. We may, in retrospective, say, we want Daniel to do it all the time, or Daniel's doing a terrible job. We want to rotate to somebody else, but or Daniel hates it and you know, doesn't ever want to do it again. And that can be part of that retrospective. You don't have to fix in stone the practice uh, of, of the way you did it last week. You change it and you adapt. I love it. That's
0: the the key theme that I'm always focusing on is we we just try something and if it doesn't we don't like it we just change it you know I like the metaphor of a garden because it's never done and there are different seasons and you're a lot of it is responding to the needs of who you have so as trainees cycle in and out of your lab something completely different might work one year that doesn't work at all the next and that doesn't mean it's wrong it means that we just need to adapt
1: that's beautiful, and if your if your planning style is the same one that was used in 1986 when your PI started, presumably things have changed, and and that style may need to change, uh, and it may change like you said once a year, once a month, who knows? Um, but you have that built in; you have a built in opportunity to change. I think we've talked about some of the way some of the problems that LabScrum can solve, but can you tell us a few more of the? Uh, maybe more subtle places where problems crop up that lab scrum can come in and and help resolve those problems?
0: I like to talk about the goals of something like lab scrum, meaning three characteristics. So improving the quantity of your science, hopefully, we're going to help you get more done, improving the quality of your science, hopefully, we're going to help you do more rigorous science, and then improve your quality of life. And I didn't see that third one coming. I didn't predict Unexpected. that one. Yeah. A lot of grad students have said, oh, I don't feel like I'm alone anymore. Oh, I understand how I can get help. I understand that other people are struggling also and that there's this feeling of social support and kind of reducing that imposter syndrome. And I didn't see that one coming, but I would say that is one of the big things that is often comes out of it.
1: And do you think that just comes from the regular check-ins of seeing other people that had their experiments fail, of getting help when you are blocked and not, there's this sense in graduate school that you're kind of on your own, right? You're It's sink or swim. You do your project. You're set adrift. And, you know, we're here to chastise you when you don't get it right, but we're not really here to nurture you, right? There's not always a lot of support. And so what I hear you saying is these regular check-ins with other human beings in the lab lets me know that I'm part of a team and that they've got my back.
0: When things go well, yes, absolutely. Um, I completely agree that we are trying to give you a way that you can learn from your peers instead of always just relying on your PI. And it turns out that oftentimes there is so much support that you can give each other, Uh, whether it's sending a paper draft to your postdoc or a more senior grad student, when your PI doesn't have time to look at it or, you know, scheduling co-writing time or literally anything that it is that can, you can help each other. That's the big culture shift that we're trying to do is let's focus on supporting each other as a team, because it will help all of our science move forward.
1: That's beautiful. Some people may be listening and thinking, wow, that's a lot of meetings. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Compared to the traditional system of a one-on-one meeting with your PI and then a regular, typically weekly lab meeting, for grad students, it ends up about even. It's about the same for PIs, it's a huge drop in meeting time, because, depending on the size of their lab, because of all those one-on-one meetings. So maybe we're keeping our meetings the same, but hopefully getting more value out of them, or for PIs freeing up a lot of time.
1: Yeah, I think for the PI, you schedule an hour-long meeting with the PI, usually because that's the size of meetings for some reason. And the student shows up, and feels that they better fill that hour, otherwise it's going to look like they're not doing enough, right? That's the, I'm, I'm just talking through the mentality, it's the subtext of those meetings. And so they do fill the time with things that probably don't need to be said to the PI, or maybe they should have been said to somebody else, or the PI should have heard them and told three other people and didn't. So there's like a lot of dysfunction in that that assumption that this is the only interface of conversation between the PI and the student one-on-one.
0: And some weeks you might have so much, you've been waiting for this meeting. (laughs) Remember the meeting where you come in and you're like, I have my list of questions. I am ready to go. Um, And then some weeks you've got nothing, not because you were a failure, but because you're in the middle of something that doesn't need a lot of feedback.
1: So I think we've given a pretty clear overview, I hope, of what Agile and Scrum are, how it would apply in a lab, some of the benefits. How does this make its way into a lab? Because traditionally, the PI would be deciding how we're going to do our planning. They set the culture of how the work is done in the lab. So if a student is listening and says, man, that sounds really great. I wish I could have all those benefits. Is there any hope that a student can bring this to lab?
0: Particularly because there's something that is pre-organized and other people have tried it and been successful. It's one of the reasons I've taken the time to write what I've written and try to put documentation up there. So it doesn't have to seem like your crazy idea. It can be sort of a... It's Lisa's
1: crazy idea. <laughs> ...externally validated.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was my crazy idea. But but I also have found that um, many other people have had this idea as well. This isn't a new idea. Um, and so... Bringing it to a, to your lab and saying this is something that we're inter- maybe we're interested in trying. I will say that PIs are just extraordinarily busy people. And so if you come with a pretty clear idea that's already pretty well thought out, it is easier to get a yes than if you just kind of have something that isn't clear, you know, that, that is going to take work from a PI to figure out how to do it.
1: Yeah, so if you show up to your weekly meeting with the PI and say, "Look, I want to try this lab scrum thing. All it requires is that the five of us stand in the lab twice a week and instead of having three meetings, you're going to have two meetings." And I and and importantly, can we just try it for a couple of cycles? Because I think you do need to go through more than one cycle to be able to do the retrospective to adapt to see what people respond to. It'd be tough to do this for a week and then say, "Oh, it didn't work for us," right?
0: I like to encourage people to try it for 3 sprints, whatever a sprint is for you.
1: Okay. That's great. And I'm listening now and I think, "Oh, that's super cool. Do I need to read a book? Do I need to go for Scrum leader training? Do I need to get a certificate? What what is my process here if I want to Do I need all those things to even try this out or can I just get started?
0: Yeah, I don't think that you do. Um, I have done my best to give you some materials. Uh, Labscrum.org is the website. I have a couple things up there. Number one, I have a LabScrum guide, which is intended to be really nuts and bolts what to do and how to do it. I have a case study up there for a more narrative discussion of how things sometimes go for people. There's some coverage in in uh, Nature Careers for the um, external validation piece. And then there are video interviews with PIs and grad students to talk about their experience. And my hope is that between all of those, there's something that's useful for you. If you like to think about project management theory and it's interesting to you, I think reading all the other Scrum stuff is great. It's go, go for it. And I can even recommend some you know, vanilla Scrum videos that are pretty helpful. I oftentimes find that they are a little confusing for people. But if this is something that's interesting for you, there is there is an unlimited amount of information on Agile and Scrum that is so common. How to do it in your actual context is a little bit more unusual, and that's <laughs> what I've tried to give you what I have. And then the other thing is I um, am always willing to like have a a super quick phone call or something like that if you just need some brainstorming.
1: Well, that was excellent. You can tell I'm excited about this topic. It is long overdue um, in terms of labs adopting some of these proven practices for project management, because I think it helps students. It helps science. It makes everybody feel better. Um, so thank you, Lise, for taking the time to talk to us today.
0: My pleasure. It was It was so fun.
1: All right, Josh, how many new words do you learn in that interview about Loud Scrum? I gotta say, Dan,
2: being completely transparent and honest, I was sipping on my afternoon coffee when I first listened to the audio of this, and when she said she was the Scrum Master, uh, I did a spit take. Uh, did you spit it everywhere? Yeah, yeah, I sure did. Too close to the key master of Gozer, or what? <laughs> that's right, uh, that's right. I did just watch the uh, the films that made us Ghostbusters Edition on Netflix recently, Um so maybe that was fresh in my mind. Uh, but this was really cool, Dan. You know, I, I'm i not a software developer. That's not something I've been part of at all. But I love to learn about new ways to think about planning and organizing your workflow. And so I got a lot out of this and and I don't see much software development or coding in my future, but... I'm definitely going to give some thought into how I can implement some of these principles and practices into my own work. I can definitely see how this could have been helpful in a lab context.
1: Yeah, I think take it to its most simple level. If if you had gotten together with your whole lab, and and think about the people in your lab for a minute, call them into mind because it's been a few years for you and I, Josh. You're standing in a circle and you go around and you personally, Josh, have to say, What did I accomplish yesterday and the day before? What do I plan to do for the next two days? And what are the things that are in my way that are going to prevent me from getting those things done? If I had done any one of those things, Josh, in any of the five years I was in graduate school, it probably would have taken me a lot less time. Because what happened with me is I would get there and I'd know in the back of my mind I had things to do. And so I'd go and I'd split cells And then I would think, oh, you know what I should have done is split those into a different kind of dish because I needed to do these experiments. And then three days later, I would have forgotten that and not done that thing. And a week would go by and then a month and then a year. And I I feel like even just this very simple interaction would have helped me to organize my life.
2: Well, and I think it can be a very unfortunate happening where, you know, Dan, you spend maybe an extra day or week or month chasing some, you know, rabbit trail or going down some path that someone else in your own research group that you work shoulder to shoulder with might've already known, Oh, Hey, there's already a paper on that. Or I tried that two weeks ago and that didn't work or, Oh yeah, that, that buffer doesn't, it is totally messed up. Uh, But because we don't have these formal, um, or we don't have these intentional uh, lines of communication uh, with even our own lab group. I think sometimes our efficiency goes way down. And I was thinking a little bit about this, Dan. Even as you were as you were describing working with a lot of students, talking to a lot of students, this was conjuring to me, uh, conjuring thoughts of. One of the typical ways that labs communicate with one another, and that's through the lab meeting. Uh, I think that's a common thing that labs do is maybe have right. some sort of weekly lab meeting. Um, and one format of that that has become somewhat popular that some labs do is instead of one person presenting the whole time, you you go around the circle and each person gives an update. And to some degree, that sounds similar to what you know what you all were describing. However, I realize a few of the key pieces that are missing that could actually make that a much more useful proposition is oftentimes there's the update part, the, well, here's what I'm working on, but you miss out on the other pieces, which are, what are my barriers? What are my challenges? What are the ways that I can invite you all, your collective knowledge in to actually help me? It's otherwise just this very factual, almost like reading a newspaper. Here's what I'm doing. Next person,
1: and everybody tunes out while you're talking, right? Because it has no impact on them and you're not asking them for anything.
2: Yeah, actually, they're probably sitting there. In my experience, they're sitting there thinking about, okay, what am I going to say when it's my turn?
1: <laughs> I need enough. I need to say enough. <laughs> yeah, I love this. I love this format, especially for any PIs that are listening, because if you're managing people and you're not a micromanager's type person, you don't want to. Inject your own uh, motivation and your own force and your own direction into what your lab members are doing. And so, how can you get them to think about their own process? Because not everybody has come through undergraduate with this very clear delineation of what am I going to get done today. And I feel like this scrum process is a very light touch way of saying, here's a way to think about your day. And if you can articulate what it is you hope to get done, you are, you're probably more advanced than you would have been if I had totally left you alone to sink or swim. And I, f- I feel like a lot of PIs just allow certain students to float. You know, if, if you don't bring your own motivation and your own ability to plan your day, then your PI is not going to do it for you. And your PI isn't really offering support or help for how to build those skills. You know, what What this conjured up
2: for me was something we've talked about on the show before um, a few different times, and that is this notion of team science and how really if the main goal of, of working in a lab, of doing science, was to advance science in the most efficient way, we would probably use more of a team format. So um, when I heard you and Lisa describing some of these ways of thinking about planning and working together, um, it really just... Made me think about more effectively working as a team with the people around you in ways that don 't typically happen in an academic setting where this this premium and this reward structure uh, seem to be really focused on individuality like what is what is your project what are your results you're the first author, which is fine, but there's so much more likelihood of just of just getting. Stuck and and there's really a lack of accountability too. I was just thinking through if part of my workflow was knowing every day or every three days, you know, you and I and the other members of my team were going to sit and and talk about what I was doing and and what were the barriers. It's almost like having a lab meeting every day or every three days, and it's gonna help, it's gonna keep me from going adrift. We talked about in the very last episode we did, Dan, uh, this this metaphor of of graduate school as swimming out into the ocean.
1: <laughs> oh, I remember that very labored metaphor. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring it back again. It was great. Uh, no, we were, we made we made it work.
2: Well, you know, in some ways, I see these regular communications, these regular planning meetings um, and progress meetings with your team and your coworkers and your colleagues as being these more regular uh, guideposts along your way as you go. And it seemed to me, if if I was doing this as a graduate student it would have been a lot more unlikely that i would have just completely been spinning my wheels for days weeks even months
1: yeah if your cadence of reporting on your progress is a once a month lab meeting let's say let's say there's enough people in your lab that you present once a month you may drift until the the week of the lab meeting, when you realize that the deadline is approaching and you need to get something done, and that's what I was saying to Lisa. Um, having that having that cadence every two or three days, you just, like you said, Josh, you don't get the chance to to float around and and lose opportunities and lose time. I don't think this solves the false incentives that are set by authorship order, obviously. But I love what you're saying about the approach to team science because I think once you are communicating your daily activities and somebody else notices, hey, our daily activities actually overlap quite a bit, or this is going to take you a long time, but it'd be very easy for me to help you with it, then I think you naturally tend toward a more team approach. And again, I don't know that this solves authorship, but I think it does. Uncover the fact that we have all these individual silos that do not communicate, and that is slowing down our research. So, Dan, I
2: was—I was—I just did a Google search because I was trying to learn more on my own about this agile methodology and this Scrum framework. And the first thing that popped up on my Google feed was that my own, uh, my own university, my own institution offers a, a boot camp and a training in becoming a scrum master and technology project management that you can do um, as an employee or student at my university. So, it seems like this is something that, and this is something I didn't know existed at all until I listened to this interview that you did, Dan. So, it seems like, and you all talked a little bit about this, but there are some great ways, um, if anyone's listening to this and wants to learn more, uh, there are certainly ways you can, in a pretty short period of time, uh, learn a lot more about what this is and how you might implement this in your own context.
1: Yeah, this may feel very new to research scientists, but this is very well established. There's a a lot of resources on the web. There are certifications and certificates you can get uh, training in this. All right, well, I I encourage all the listeners to check your university to see if somewhere outside of your department, they offer this kind of training. And I would just love it if (laughs) a bunch of biologists and chemists and engineers showed up to scrum master training or bootcamp for learning agile methodologies. That'd be awesome.
2: And again, for those of you who um, are in lab and you're interested in this, you can also check out Lisa May's site, uh, lab scrum.org. There are some great articles where uh, this has been written up in, in nature and other places. So if you want to learn more about the lab portion of this, uh, do check out lab
1: and thanks again, Teresa, for recommending the topic.
2: All right, Dan, this uh, was a listener-suggested topic, so it's a great reminder that if you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you love the show, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We love getting your feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you would like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and we are about to do some beer shopping for the fall. So let us know your beer suggestions, and thanks so much to the ongoing support
1: from all of our patrons. What you got, Dan? That sounded like a threat, Josh. If you don't (laughs) send us beer money... We're going to be so sad and drink Natty lights. I'll just drink
2: IPAs all fall. I don't care.
1: <laughs> Watch I, me. I thought you'd have to do something <laughs> cheaper, Josh. IPAs are pretty high end.
2: Maybe we should do that, Dan. We should do a whole season of drinking various cheap American beers and
1: compare Things them. that we used to drink in graduate school, basically. Exactly. Exactly.
2: <laughs> all right, Dan. It has been a pleasure as always, and I will see you
1: next time. We'll see you then, Josh. Bye.